2: It's Friday, October 24th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at martherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price you would normally expect to pay. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing that industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get fifty dollars towards any one of their obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made in America mattresses, visit Casper.com/inquiringminds and use promo code Inquiring Minds. Once again, that's Casper.com/inquiringminds promo code Inquiring Minds. This week, Tasneem Raja, who's the interactive editor at Mother Jones, sat down with William Gibson, the sci-fi author who coined the term cyberspace, and whose debut novel, Neuromancer, is a cult classic said to have paved the way for awesome films like Tron and The Matrix and many others. His new novel, The Peripheral, will be released next week. When Tasneem asked Gibson what he would like to know about the future,
3: here's what he had to say. I would want to see something from the future looking at how the what the future thinks about us okay. not what they're doing but what they think about us in the way of like what we think about the victorian's today because what we think about the victorian's is nothing like what the victorian's thought about themselves they they wouldn't be able to get their heads around it. It would be like a nightmare for them. It really like everything they thought they were. We think is a joke. Everything we think was cool about them, they weren't even aware of. And I'm sure that I'm sure that the the future will view us in exactly that way. That just seems to be how how history how history human history goes along.
2: But before we get to the main interview, I caught up with Dr. Dan Kelly for an update on the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Dan is an infectious disease specialist at UCSF who co-founded WellBody, a health clinic in Sierra Leone, eight years ago. He's been going there to treat patients ever since, and instead of staying away when the Ebola outbreak first began, he caught the first flight back to help. That's how Dan is. Now he's in Sierra Leone, where he's making serious inroads in responding to the epidemic. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Stan Kelly.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So tell us where you are and what's going on.
1: Well, I'm an infectious disease doctor that works at uh, UCSF, as well as the founding member of a nonprofit here in Sierra Leone called Well Body Alliance, and right now, I am in Freetown, Sierra Leone, the capital city, and have been working here for the past eight years or so, but uh, in more recent times, I've gotten involved with the Ebola crisis.
2: So what's going on? Is that is uh, is that a major hub for the crisis, or is it sort of a secondary location?
1: Well, this this Ebola crisis is unlike any other that's occurred in the world. We're looking at a, at basically a combined infection rate in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone that's greater than all of the prior Ebola outbreaks combined, and no clear end in sight. To, despite all the models, the rhetoric, and the and the political, um, premonitions. However, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been here pre Ebola. I was here in June, took a trip. Um, at that time I didn't think that Ebola would progress like it has. I came back in August for three weeks, was doing a lot of infection prevention and control work, training over a thousand healthcare workers and working on systems, um, setups and then set up a coalition to increase the number of organizations that, can um, support this this work on the ground, and now have been back here with uh, different different groups, including uh, partners in health and, and collaboration with my own organization, Well Body Alliance. So, I mean, what we're what we're looking at is a situation where we have a country that's coming out of a ten year civil war. They had a fragile healthcare system, and didn't have enough staff stuff or systems in place before the Ebola epidemic. And when Ebola struck, it essentially just overburdened the whole healthcare system. And we've been looking at a situation where we're trying to keep a, a country that's teetering on the verge of collapse afloat. And over the course of the epidemic, we've heard a lot about protective gear. And I think that it's been Um, it's been easier for... The American Medical Relief Supply Organizations and the public to raise money and send over goods, but I think that the fear that is associated with the high mortality rate and lack of treatment for Ebola is driving uh, a lot of the human resource capacity issues that we currently face and are challenged with. I mean, I was today I was just in a meeting with the CDC and they're trying to pin me down on, you know, when are we going to open up this Ebola care unit and how many staff are we going to be putting in. And it's just, unfortunately, it's a moving target because when, you know, even before before people like um, Mr. Duncan was infected and, and killed from Ebola and the nurses in Dallas were also infected, I think that people were really hesitant to go. And now I think that there's even, there's perhaps an increased hesitancy, concern that the borders might close, concern that if they go, they, they might not have good evacuation capacity and concern that if, if they do, um, if they actually take care of Ebola patients in Sierra Leone, Liberia or Guinea, that they may get infected and they may die and, and people are, you know, people have families, jobs, and it's not easy for them to take time off. So I think that the real, the, the crux of this human of this crisis is the human resource issue in the staffing because you know we're starting to see more uh stuff we're starting to see better systems and we're starting to really see uh, more money or resources come in to make things go, and not and that's not all perfect. There are a lot of gaps in funding, and there's gaps in there's stockouts still of protective gear. But we're in much better shape there and have much more grasp on opening up beds. But we don't have an, enough people on the ground here to mentor Sierra Leoneans to show them leadership to. Um, accompany them on the way forward, to even provide our own expertise to manage Ebola patients and to staff these treatment units as well as care centers. So I mean, I think that it is it is a ultimately a complex crisis because we essentially need to rebuild or create a pseudo healthcare system to, in order to respond. But. We can't do it with all of these things in place, and I think that the the last uh, straw that needs to be picked up is is getting people from America over here.
2: So, and you and you say that because that's where the expertise is, and you just need sort of hands on the ground people that know what they're doing. Um, you know, it, it begs the question of. To what extent should, are the people who are coming from, you know, the Western world going to be training people who are, you know, from Sierra Leone, or is this something that you just need the manpower because there just isn't um, enough people to help out?
1: We need manpower and we need technical expertise. Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, none of these countries had ever seen Ebola before this outbreak. So everybody was completely unprepared. Uh, Surveillance systems weren't in place. The Presidents of these countries called emergency. Um, they they can, can called their uh, countries like in a state of emergency, and and they have been very forthcoming that they do not have the technical expertise to manage this outbreak, which is why everything that's being done at the central or national level, level all the way down to. The district level and in the communities is essentially being co-managed with technical experts like the WHO and CDC. However, um, there's not enough implementers and and so we need technical experts but we also just need boots on the ground and you know I think a lot of people in America they're they're not just scared but you know they they never they themselves is never treat treatable. I think that this was the first uh, you know, Mr. Duncan was the first uh, imported case of, or I should say, exported case of Ebola that had ever happened in history. I mean, we had seen people evacuated and treated at the biocontainment facilities in Emory or in Nebraska, et cetera, but we had never actually seen somebody get on a plane, come here, develop symptoms, and then affect other people. So that was a certainly a bit of a a, a bit of a shocker. And and but you know, I think that. If people realize more and more that we do have systems in place, like, you know, how can, how can you help if you're a doctor, a nurse, um, an engineer, a public health specialist? I mean, we have a, a website, it's partner, it's pih.org slash Ebola. There's a recruitment section, you can fill it out, you get interviewed, uh, if, you know, you make it through the interview. You're allowed to go to the CDC for a three-day outstanding training. I did it myself. I was in the pilot program, even though I'd even been to Sierra Leone and worked in these treatment centers before. And then, um, and then you get some onboarding and you're deployed into a structured environment with a group of doctors and nurses that can staff these units together. And none of this costs the individual money. So, I mean, I think that there are structures that are being p- put in place. There are, we realized a lot of the barriers and have thought carefully through some of the challenges in getting staff. So it's not like I'm just sitting here saying, oh, we need staff, we need boots on the ground, we need technical expertise, but I have no idea how you're going to get there. I mean, we know. It's just like other people need to know as well.
2: And are you seeing the rates of um, infections in you know where you are stabilizing or are they still Increasing, I mean, and, and and do the people there are they starting to understand how the disease spreads and uh, you know avoiding infection or is that still a major problem?
1: So when you look at when you look at the infection rates from a big picture standpoint, we are seeing still exponential rise in the rate of Ebola infections. However, when you when you start to move into a more granular level, you realize that. The Ebola epidemic is moving like wildfire through the through the country. Unfortunately, so in places where the epidemic first started in March, April, like the district of Kayloun and Kenema near Gwekadu, Guinea, then we we saw we saw a huge um, number of cases and the need for treatment centers, and just that was the hot zone. That was the epicenter of this outbreak. Now, in those areas, what we're seeing much more is is like scattered cases, pockets, almost just flares of Ebola cases that are discovered and then controlled. Meanwhile, the epidemic kind of shifted westward towards Freetown and then moved back eastward through the north part of the, um, the country into other districts. And so we're seeing still like this wildfire escalating rise in infections and as we put the resources in place, like the treatment centers, get them well staffed, like MSF was doing an outstanding job there in Kailan and their efforts are a large reason why the epidemic's under control there. But unfortunately, international agencies and and the um, – and the, kind of the way funding has been been distributed throughout this crisis is a, it's a very reactive approach. And by reactive, I mean once, once everybody realizes that one of these parts of the country bec- is becoming a high transmission area, then everybody is like, oh, now we need to – now we need to um, build treatment centers. Now we need better diagnostics there. Now we need to actually – Built like create a pseudo healthcare system, and by the time they do it, it's out of control and it's too late. And and that's why Tom Frieden, director of CDC, has ta- been talking about so much care in this outbreak that we can't just solve this via traditional public health strategies, i.e., contact tracing, house house surveillance, etc. It's because um, we have let this continuously get out of control, out of control, out of control, to the point where where I have been working for the past eight years in Kono District, we're actually looking at a very similar situation. There's 33 cases in the past month, 22 in the past two weeks, 20 have died, 90% mortality rate, correct? So, we went to DFID, we went to different funding agencies, we kind of talked about Kono. Nobody wants to hear about Kono because it's it's not one of these high transmission areas, just like other parts of the country were They were not high-transmission areas, but we're very concerned about the way this is moving back eastward towards Kono, that it'll become a high-transmission area, and that still, even with this foreshadowing, this history, this warning, we're not seeing a proactive approach. We're seeing still diffid say, oh, we need to focus on Freetown areas that are high-transmission, and... And, you know, if, if it gets worse in Kono, then we'll like pour resources in, which, in my opinion, is, is an unfortunate perspective.
2: Well, I don't want to take up much more of your time because obviously you have very important things to do, but just give us a sense of what we can do as um, listeners in the U.S. and elsewhere to help. Uh, you know, where, where should we send funds if we can't uh, go ourselves? What, what should we do that you think would make the biggest impact in, for the people in West Africa?
1: Yeah, thank you. So I think that if, if you are somebody that is, um, skilled in and able to respond to this epidemic, I implore you to to consider taking time away from your family, uh, finding ways through your jobs and reaching out to our coalition response via the Partners in Health website. Uh, You can Google Partners in Health Ebola response and there's a recruitment page and it's very structured, it's smooth and we need you. If this, if you are somebody that is not able to to take time off, I mean, we still need resources. Like I was explaining, places like we we work in Kono, despite governmental and multilateral commitments, these are still under resourced areas, and funding is required. Philanthropic investment is required so that we prepare ourselves appropriately and. We don't have to rely on these international fundings when it gets out of hand. So we do have a crowdfunding site. It's crowdfund.ucsf.edu. And uh, I have m- my name, Dan Kelly is there as for the Ebola response and you can make a donation there or through our own organization, wellbodyalliance.org. So there you have it. And I really appreciate everyone listening and, and your. Care, concern, and and awareness to this this outbreak. It will end, though. I just want to I just want to leave people with the the thought that you know as as doomsday sometimes as the media um, can present this outbreak. We you know we're working really hard out here. I can tell you that from the ground as a frontline healthcare worker, and that you know despite everything I see, I have tremendous hope that we will see the end of Ebola within the next year.
2: Wow. Well, thank you very much for all that you do and thank you for being on inquiring minds Dan Kelly.
1: All right, thank you.
2: To support his work, you can go to crowdfund.ucsf.edu and click on his project. He's looking to raise 150,000 and he's only 14,000 away from reaching that goal, which he hopes to do in the next week. So please support Dan Kelly and his important work. Now, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Tasneem's interview of William Gibson. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price you would normally expect to pay. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a -a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king-size is only $950. Casper actually sent me a mattress to try it out when they came on as an Inquiring Mind sponsor. And at first, I thought it was a little strange to get a mattress delivered to my door that I hadn't actually tried out beforehand, but it's legitimately one of the most comfortable beds I've ever slept on. I love it. And it actually was really simple to get. It showed up on a box, I cut it open, and boom, it expanded into a big bed. So to get 50 bucks towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's Casper.com slash minds promo code inquiring minds.
4: Welcome to Inquiring Minds, William Gibson.
3: Hi, glad to be here.
4: I want to talk to you about the book. Um, what made you want to write the peripheral?
3: Well, it's, that's, that's the, I guess the, the thus the narrative begins because it, as I mentioned earlier this is this is the very first interview chronologically. I had written three novels initially that I wrote in the in the eighties the mid to late eighties, and they were all set i thought although the books never say around twenty thirty five so pretty far pretty far in the future from from the 80s, then I wrote three books in the 90s, which were more obviously set in well, just about now. So they've become alternate history in, in a way, because you know no, nothing they depict actually is actually actually happened in. 2014 although the real 2014 does feel kind of like kind of like those books and i i published the last of those in 1999 and i decided that for my experiment for the tw- the actual 21st century would be that i would write books set basically in the moment in which they were written or and as it turned out in in the year pri- they're set in the year prior to their publication. So when I finished that, I found myself one looking back on why I wanted to do that, and one of the reasons I'd wanted to do it is that I had no. I I felt like in in 1984 when I started, I had had a pretty good yardstick for just how weird things felt to me in terms of emergent technology and what was going on in in the contemporary world then and the general course of history by 1999 i felt like my my yard i was still using in some ways an 80s yardstick and i i wanted to immerse myself in in the weirdness of the early 20th century and try to try to get a, an early 20th century yardstick of of weirdness without without which i figured i would be unable in the eventually in the 21st century to write science fiction set in the future of the twenty first century or in the early twenty second century, and even saying twenty second century <laughs> kind of weird, like you don't hear that much yet. you don't hear it the way back in the twentieth century we were always hearing twenty first century right. Yeah, we don't have people don't say twenty second century. Like that's interesting, right? Like we don't have. I mean,
4: do you think it's because we've we kind of went through that? That changeover, and maybe it wasn't as exciting as people thought it was going to be, or you know, I wonder if it's just that we're like, okay, been there, done that. We're not really like, what is the twenty second century going to be like, or is it that people are nervous?
3: Well, I'm um, yeah. I mean, all of the all of the above, probably, and probably a a few other things as well. Although I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what they would be, but I have that flagged as an area of of um exploration, like why we don't you know how we react to to the words twenty second century and whether we we even dare to have a have a concept of it but having you know having written my my last three books. I decided, you know, if I don't have it now, I'm not going to have it. So I would, I would get, I would give it a try. And what I came up with is something, something that uses two of my previous modalities. There's an, there's an early, maybe 10 or 15 years from now, near future that's pretty, Pretty recognizable, but shabbier and less fortunate than ours even is even now. And then there's something in the 22nd century. So I've got a, got a kind of of dual, Yeah, and dual you know, narrative I will... going mm-hmm. on.
4: I won't give too much away but there's a lot of discussion in this book about what humans have been doing to the planet and to the climate. And is the idea that someone would read a book like The Peripheral and, you know, think it was a great story but not feel compelled to fight for change or do things differently? Is that frustrating to you?
3: Well, it's not. I it's not it wasn't written so much as a a call to arms as an examination of the way that we, we look at that stuff. And it, it also, and I think a lot of readers will probably, I hope will never notice this. It, it also does a lot of looking at how we, how we think about the past as a, Place and how we think about the future as a place, and how we've how we've done that before, and maybe how that's changed in. I mean, so what do you think about hundred years?
4: Mm-hmm. What do you think about the strain of thinking that says, you know, one of the one of the reasons sci-fi exists is to scare us into doing things differently while we still can. Is that is that a notion you prescribe to?
3: Well, I. As long as it's one of the things it does, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does it does other it does other things as well. I was interested when I was writing this book. I, for instance, I, I thought a lot about how how we tend to automatically. Think of the inhabitants of the past as having been rubes and naives <laughs> and and people people who just couldn't cope with the complexity of our world, people we could probably you know run run circles around in terms of of being devious and and <laughs> sneaky. Sneaky and whatnot. And one of one of the things I, I loved about the series Deadwood was mm-hmm. that sense of just how deadly clever people people in the in the the nineteenth century probably really were. <laughs> and so, if those guys from Deadwood got out of a time machine now in downtown Los Angeles. They wouldn't be hopeless hicks; they'd be like very dangerous characters, <laughs> simply simply because they were. And and the people in my my twenty second century stream in the book initially assume that that anyone anyone they're dealing with back in in Twenty twenty five or whenever it's you know it's just kind of a hick.
4: Well, so there's a there's a time travel element to this book as well, and I have to ask if you could pick any era to visit. When, when would it be?
1: Hmm. Well, if I were
3: visiting it the way the way these people did, that sort of changes it. Like I can't really talk about it without
0: right without.
3: Spoiling what's I think kind of unique. What I think is unique about that time travel. I know what you mean in this book, but I don't know. dude Do, I mean it's, you, you're asking like which past era? I assume because, like you know, the future we'd have we'd have no no way of no way of knowing. Although, if I could have any information from our future and only have one sort of narrow area about it, I would want to see something from the future looking at how, so what the future thinks about us. Okay. Not what they're doing, but what they think about us in the way of, like, what we think about the Victorians today, because w- what we think about the Victorians is nothing like what the Victorians thought about themselves. They they wouldn't be able to get their heads around it. It would be like a nightmare <laughs> for them. It really, like, everything they thought they were, we think is a joke. Everything we think was cool about them they weren't even aware of, and I'm sure that I'm sure that the the future will view us in exactly that way. That just seems to be how how history how history human history goes along. So yeah. if I had that information, I would be able to in, infer a huge amount about everything else and about the people who had. Assembled that documentary about us.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of artifacts from the past, I know you famously resisted using the internet for a long time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was eBay that finally got you on.
3: Well, it was the World Wide Web, actually, that that got me on. I had had been resisting friends to you know tell, telling me to get email for for years and I but I'd only been resisting it because prior to the web there was a sort of learning curve involved in using email. And people would tell me I had to do it and you know, I should be on this list serve and whatnot. And I'd say, no, no, when dogs and children can do it, I'll I'll be there and with the World Wide Web, dog, dogs and children can do it. And I was I was instantly there. eBay was eBay in its early incarnation was the first thing that I, I found that that would get me back on a on a daily basis. But eBay is much less like its early self these days.
4: Do you have any collecting passions at the moment?
3: Well, I try not to actually collect things i when when eBay was a really easy place to buy little bits and pieces of the past and not have to pay an arm and a leg in postage, which seems to have changed a lot i would would go on sort of exploratory campaigns and accumulate things in one one category, but I have a a kind of horror of keeping them. Like, I I don't want to collect them. I just want to see a bunch of them and then give them away or sell them to somebody else. So I don't have... There's nothing now that I'm accumulating and keeping, I'm I'm glad to say.
4: What do you mean by horror?
3: Well, people... I don't... like. Collections give me the willies. I I love museums, and the idea of a sort of private museum. But there's something about something about the idea of having to complete a collection. It just gets gets to me. It's sort of like a fingernail on a blackboard. I just I don't want to be the person who has to get the the last two Lincoln Head pennies in the in the <laughs> folder. There's just something terribly sad about it. And then you get them. What do you do? Right.
4: Well, you know, in your books there's there's often a sense of romance, I feel, associated with artifacts from the past. And in this book, what's so interesting is that um the the present of the novel is so familiar, so recognizable to Readers, because as you say, this is probably this is maybe the the closest, um, you know, the shortest gap that there's been between when you're writing and when you're living. I mean, there's there's a there's a cronut in your book. Why is there a cronut in that book?
3: Because the the implication, the implication is that the cronut, which today is. Well, it's probably not really trending anymore.
4: Well, actually, let me. You know, all of not all of our readers are going to know what a cronut is. Can you explain what a cronut is?
3: Well, you know, I've never actually seen a cronut myself, but my my understanding is that the cronut is a hybrid pastry. It's half donut and half croissant, and last year, or maybe even back into to the year before that, there were lots of internet stories about people in Manhattan standing in lines around the block to get one of these these fabulous hybrid 21st century pastries. So to have have it turn up in this near future of my book in in a, a very undistinguished, tiny, small town somewhere in the equivalent of Tim Horton's, to me, it indicates that the, the, you know, the trendy hipster cronut of our day found its way into the, found its way into the mainstream Mm
1: -hmm. and
3: became this sort of boring Starbucks kind of pastry (laughs) that everyone, everyone takes for granted.
4: Well, sort of on the flip of that, um, you know, the, the, use of cell phones in your book you know as as devices used by your characters that is um has always been very interesting to me and in this book i was actually kind of surprised to see cell phones being being kind of powerful um because the description of what your phone could do seemed a lot like you know what i can do with my phone so just you know i i just thought that was interesting
3: well in my 20s in my 22nd century though people's relationships with their phones has become so intimate that it's kind of invisible to them actually one of the that was one of the most difficult things initially about r- writing the book was the how the level of telophony that the, the people of the 22nd century take take for granted and how how to depict that in fiction while not having them notice it. Because if they're awed by how their, you know, how their smartphones work, I'm not really doing my job. I want the reader to be kind of, oh, wow. But I don't want the characters to notice it. So the characters can't ever overtly describe how they're making the call.
4: Right, you know, so I was reading an interview that you did in 1994, um, you know, 20 years ago, and you're talking about the very early days of mass access to the internet. And um, you said, I'm looking this up, you said, I sometimes suspect that we're seeing something in the internet as significant as the birth of cities. Do you still think that?
3: Yeah, I do. I do and I I think that um what we were talking about earlier with the the uh social media coverage of what's happening in Ferguson is a perfect a perfect example of that something really changed between that 1994 comment of mine and What's ha- what's happening right now, and it's something to do. It's it's something to do with some really fundamental change in the geography of existence. Not the physical geography of the world, which remains the same, but the way in which we can have these these really startlingly intimate and Non-hierarchical, unfiltered experiences of things at a, things at a distance, mm-hmm. and following those disturbances on on Twitter, which is something that we now take completely for granted, would have just been like fantastically weird in. 1994. Like nobody in 1994 ever wrote the piece of science fiction that described that experience yesterday.
4: You know, 20 years ago, you were also very optimistic in that interview that people who love the internet would somehow manage to keep it free of corporate control. Are you disappointed by what's happened since?
3: Well, it's... Um, I kind of, it kind of makes me raise, it makes me raise an eyebrow at, at the naivete of my younger self. And somehow I was more, I was more, it was easier for me to do that in an interview, fortunately, than to do it in my work. Cause in, In my work, it was never depicted as being, being, oh, you know, this will be okay.
1: Hmm.
3: This will be real. Yeah, this will be really good. In my fiction, I don't, I don't do that. I think, I think I picked up the, I picked up that strain of optimism from the people People I started to meet through my work who were actually involved in in some cases in helping to make the internet what it is what it's what it's become, but when I look at it's like
1: looking
3: looking at the n s a and what it what it's evidently been up to now. I can't see any way that that wouldn't have happened. It just seems yeah that's that's a kind of that's kind of a natural, given what they what they were in the business of doing and what this what this technology can do, but at the same time, I can't see any way that what they were doing wouldn't have been leaked to the public in, in much the way in much the way it was. The stuff is all kind of two edged that way, I think, so okay,
4: Google Glass have you tried it? Do you care about it?
3: I tried it for about twenty seconds <laughs> at an event I did at the new york public library <laughs> last last year, so I got a sense of you know a little a tiny visual. Sense of it, which helped a lot actually, because I, I hadn't been able to grasp it. Mm-hmm. Now I had lunch with someone earlier this year, who is one of the the beta tester people, who uh, who was ga- given one, and he had mm-hmm. happily incorporated it into his uh, into his life. But he over lunch he he described. He told me how great it was, and then he described a couple of quite alarming episodes of of public hostility that he had encountered simply by wearing it on the street. That some people, you know, total strangers came up to him and gave him a really hard time. And I thought that was that was interesting. Although I immediately thought, oh, in a, you know. That's just the prototype when when if a technology like that goes to market you can you know you can you can buy a pair of of your grandfather's horn rimmed spectacles that will do all of that, and no one will ever know the reaction is about the identifiable form of form of the product or in in you know, in in the in the peripheral there are people who take it absolutely for granted that everybody they meet has all of that technology <laughs> embedded in their body and it's running all the time.
4: Yeah, I mean you, you kind of have walking smartphones in in a way in in this book.
3: Yeah well they, people have just been that was the internalization of of Computing is something that's that's been taken taken for granted in futurism for for a long time, and I just never wanted to go to the. It turned out considerable trouble to <laughs> to realize it in fiction, but when I did, I eventually forgot about it, which is interesting too. I mean, it was all in the early chapters where I have characters doing that stuff in, in fir- first person point of view.
4: You know, one question I'm really interested in getting your, your thoughts on, cause I'm still trying to figure out my own. Um, so, you know, in, in the geek world, everybody's talking about how women are portrayed in geek culture and, you know, how they're being treated in tech, but your books have always had, you know, these quote unquote, strong female characters, including this one, you've always given your female characters more to do than fall in love and get rescued and, you know, fall in love and get rescued. How consciously are you picking the gender of your main characters when you sit down to write?
3: Well, I I usually, without really thinking about it much, I, I tend to wind up with one of each. There'll be a, a a male lead and a female lead, and they but not necessarily in the Hollywood romance style. They but they'll inter, they'll interact. It may not it may not be it may not be romantically. I think that what I think that what happened with me was that when I, I had been a science fiction fan when I was a kid, and then I let it go, and the sixties happened, and I didn't think of it, and then in the in the seventies, I was sort of looking, looking for what was something that might be a viable art form for me, and I thought of science fiction, so I went and looked at looked at science fiction in the 70s, and I was really disappointed with most of it compared to the science fiction that had wowed me in, in the 60s. And it felt to me like, it's kind of like Nashville country. It's like I had grown up on tech or something, and now I'm getting uh, this kind of awful synthetic and, well, but one, the one area that worked for the one area that worked for me was the feminist science fiction of the seventies. So I guess it, it made a real impression on me. Like who? Um, Ursula Le Guin, Joanna Russ, Alice Sheldon, who wrote as James Tiptree. They were all like very strong voices and kind of unlikely voices considering that the extent to which science fiction had traditionally been a, a very male modality. Like we, it, Mary Shelley may have, may well have invented it. And I think she did, may have invented science fiction. And I think she did. But after that, it seemed to be a, like a, a boys a boys game, and boys were assumed to be the demographic. And so, finding finding science fiction, I mean, generally become something less exciting than I remembered it having been. Finding this that there was really interesting, and edgy science fiction being. Written by by women who were feminists, made a big impression on me.
4: Can you point um, our listeners to a, a couple examples? If you know they're they're looking to check out some cool feminist sci fi from the seventies, what should they pick up?
3: Well, I'd have to say I didn't I didn't mention her. I didn't mention her, and I, I can't offhand give you a give you a, a favorite title, but, you know, every, everyone who likes science fiction should should read Octavia Butler, for instance. So you get not only, like, like great feminist SF, but great black American SF. It's, it, it's, it's just like, it's surprising. It's surprising how much it's not what even today we expect from SF. Mm-hmm.
4: So, sci-fi movie fans swear that without Neuromancer, there would have been no Matrix, no Tron, no Ghost in the Shell. But there's no Neuromancer movie, even though a lot of directors have tried. Are you hoping for one?
3: Well, I'm open. I'm open to the possibility. I'm open to the possibility. I suppose I'm also open to the possibility that that Neuromancer will be one of those books that. Turns out to have been filmed piecemeal by <laughs> dozens hmm. of dozens of different filmmakers uh, over a period of thirty years.
4: Are there particular scenes or moments in the book that you'd really like to see played out on a movie screen?
3: Well, it, it's odd, but I never think of I never think of my my fiction that way, and I'm always uh, I'm always amazed that. That other other writers can and when I think of any any scene from Miramancer in terms of how it might be made as a movie, I mainly feel anxiety in that they, what would it look like or mm-hmm. who, what if they misunderstood as seems almost invariably the case one's intention for the shot, but there are other things I'm just, like, like totally, I'm, I would be curious about, like how in the still fairly early 21st century does one depict something like the cyberspace of, of Neuromancer?
4: Do you have a favorite movie adaptation of, you know, sci-fi or
3: not? Of any, anything that's been... Not, not so much. I don't actually think that. I, I I don't think that that adaptation of of fiction is is necessarily the a, the a, a thing to do when one wants to make when one wants to make an original film, or maybe that that uh, the distance. The distance between Kubrick's 2001 and I think the Clark short story is called The Sentinel. Like, that's a, that's a really good distance for adaptation because they have almost nothing. They have almost nothing in common.
4: Right. Is there a kind of technology or a type of technology that hasn't been invented yet that you're, you're surprised we don't have it yet?
3: I can't think of anything offhand. I'm a little puzzled by that decade-long gap between incredible incredible excitement about goggles and gloves VR uh-huh. and actually having goggles and gloves VR that works. Like, what happened? Like, what, what was that? It completely, it completely disappeared. It was, I mean, that was huge in the eighties and you couldn't, you know, every tech magazine in in the world had a picture of a girl looking gobstruck into, into these giant pointy goggles. And we <laughs> all, we all assumed that we would, uh, we would have it. And then it, it was just gone. And now it's back. Right. and it's back and you can actually see people wearing Oculus Rift looking as weird as I always kind of assumed they would because they're kind of they're, they're kind of jerky and it's very strange to watch somebody watch somebody do that and that never happened with 80s VR when you watch people do it so i i think that's probably the secret that there's something to do with some sort of time lag in the in the processing has been fixed.
4: Okay. Last question: Are you ever coming back from Canada?
3: Well, I mean, I, I come back from Canada on a pretty regular, pretty regular basis. I, I've got dual citizenship. There's nothing, <laughs> but you know what? It, it, something that's occurred to me lately, though, is that. Like, I always wondered, people would ask me, are you Canadian yet? And I'm thinking, no, it's it's not. I don't really understand how one could become Canadian. And I I still don't. But I think that what happens to people is that if you are out of the country long enough, you're... Your native country ceases to exist. It's the thing when things change sufficiently, the the country that you you were truly a native of is gone. I mean, it, it lives in your childhood and in your memory and in other people's other people's memories, but the new iteration you've never, you've never had that experience of. And so I sort of anticipate that happening, that that there, there will gradually be bits of bits of America that I'm totally not native to, aspects of it.
4: Well, William Gibson, thank you so much for joining us for Inquiring Minds.
3: Well, thank you.
2: So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us, as always, for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And I just want to let those of you who are in the Bay Area know that we are doing a live taping of our show on Tuesday, October 28th at the rickshaw stop, as part of a double bill with the other awesome podcast, Story Collider. I'll be telling a story at Story Collider, and we'll be interviewing Adam Savage of Mythbusters fame for our live taping. Tickets are still available at bayareasciencefestival.org. So come and join us for a live taping this coming Tuesday as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price you would normally pay. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. But Casper is revolutionizing that industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis.